So this morning, uh, as we just read, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 8, 14 through 17. So uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, open them up if you haven't already. So that's where we'll be pretty much camped out today. Uh, it's a pretty short passage, as you notice. Matthew's giving us a really brief overview of some events, uh, particularly the healing of, of Peter's mother-in-law, and then the casting out of some demons and healing of a bunch of other people. And that's really it. You know, honestly, if you were studying this on your own, this is probably a little short paragraph you'd, you'd just sort of gloss on over. You'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus healed some people. Great. That's what Jesus does. Cast out some demons. Great. Nice, nice, nice. Move on, right? But thankfully, you know, you and, and I were here this morning. We have time to slow down, like 45 minutes of time. <laughs> and so uh, I want us to take the opportunity to actually dive into this text. We have this time to consider the depths and, of the mercy and the hope that is present in this passage. Don't forget that Matthew has a ton of content he can put into his book, and he chooses this. This little summary was something that had to make the cut uh, when he was compiling the Gospel of Matthew. And so even though it's a short summary, uh, it's one he felt like had to be in there. And so we ought not to gloss over it. All Scripture is profitable. And so with that in mind, there are three things, three profound truths that Matthew's going to show us in this passage today. And they are, number one, that Jesus is the only one who can heal us. Jesus is the only one who can heal us. Number two, Jesus is the only one who can free us. And then finally, most importantly, Jesus is the only one who can make it last. He's the only one who can make it last. And so let's, let's pray together once more, and then we'll dive into our text this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are uh, you're so gracious. You're a gracious father. We thank you for the gift of your son, we thank you that we are known by the author of all creation, that we are known by the, the, the God who holds uh, the universe together. Uh, we thank you that you know us, but not just know us, you, you care for us, you love us. And so I pray as we study your word that we would glorify you, that you would transform us by the hearing of your word, that your spirit would, would make us like Jesus, would make us Trust in Jesus, because apart from him, we have nothing. We thank you for your grace. Be with us now. Continue to be gracious to us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So let's begin. Matthew 8, uh, verse 14, which says, When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Okay, so first we need a little bit of context. If you remember last week, Matthew told us that Jesus is currently in the town of Capernaum, okay, Capernaum, and that's actually where Jesus is living at this point in his life. Matthew told us uh, about that way back in chapter 4, that Jesus moved from Nazareth to live in Capernaum. And then in Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7, Jesus preached this huge sermon on the mount, okay, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's this, it's this large hill it's barely a mountain, but this large hill outside of Capernaum that we spent several weeks reading through that, those passages, studying the sermon, the super famous sermon. And then in Matthew 8, after Jesus finished up his Sermon on the Mount, he started making his way back home to Capernaum, okay, making his way down the hill. And so on the way, we've seen him heal some folks. Two weeks ago, we saw him heal a leper. 
And then last week, we saw him heal a centurion ser- uh, centurion's uh, servant. You know, Jesus didn't even go see the servant. He just said, he's healed back at your house, and it was so. But not only that, if you read Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, his account, he gives us a little bit more details uh, than, G- than Matthew. If you read Mark's account, you'll see that Jesus also apparently went and taught in the synagogue. Okay, He went over and taught in the synagogue because it was the Sabbath, and that's when people go and uh, meet at the synagogue and teach at the synagogue. And so Jesus did some teaching at the synagogue, and the people were just as amazed at his teaching there as they were on the mount. And then, I feel like, a, like an infomercial, that's not all. Then this uh, guy who was oppressed by a demon started shouting things. And so while he was at the synagogue, Jesus cast out a demon, okay? That's Jesus's day, okay? And that's a busy day. And so finally, after all of this, it being the Sabbath and Jesus being a good Israelite, he's probably exhausted. Jesus retreats to his friend Peter's house to rest, to take a break, a little Sabbath siesta, to, to break away from the crowds, probably get a bite to eat, maybe a quick nap. So he's going there to rest. That's the context leading up to our verse this morning. And Jesus gets to Peter's house after a long day to chill on the Sabbath, and he walks in the door, and now what does he find? When he entered Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying sick, lying sick with a fever. And so Jesus, he doesn't walk in to rest. Instead, he walks into a problem. Peter's mother-in-law isn't doing too hot. She's stuck in bed or the couch or wherever with a serious fever. And so I need to talk about two things. Uh, First, I need to talk about the culture of hospitality in a Jewish home, in a first century Jewish home. Because in first century Galilean Jewish culture, it was the role of women of the household to greet, uh, to to serve the guest and be hospitable to the guests of their home. And so when you went to a friend's house in Galilee, it was, you'd expect to be met with, with hospitality, with food and service, particularly by the women of the household. That was sort of their job. You know, I'll take your coat, you know, wash your feet. Here you go. Here's, a, here's oil for your head. Here's some food for you. That was the cultural expectation in Galilee. So, for example, you remember the story of uh, Mary and Martha from the book of Luke. So Jesus goes to his friend Lazarus's house, and Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. They're there. And do you remember what happens? Jesus comes to their house, and then Mary just sits down and starts listening to Jesus teach. And Martha sees this and gets upset. Look at Luke 10, 40, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Okay, so Martha's mad because Mary isn't doing in her mind what she's supposed to be doing. She's not serving the guest of her brother's house. That was just the cultural expectation for the women of an ancient Jewish household. And so I tell you all this because here at Peter's house, as Jesus walks in the door, that expectation would be that any women in the house, Peter's wife, uh, some historians believe Peter had a daughter named Petronella, which is a, I don't know, there may be some Petronellas here. I wouldn't name my daughter Petronella. Uh, Any sisters he had, and certainly his mother-in-law. Certainly his mother-in-law, who's this matriarch of the family. She's the one who passed down the wisdom, shows the example, teaches the younger women the proper way to host guests, that they would all come and serve Jesus by making him some food, taking his 
coat, etc. But that's not what happens. Instead, Jesus walks into a household that's tense with the reality that grandma is not doing too hot. And maybe that she might not make it. And so rather than serving Jesus, the women are probably attending to her. And so that brings up the second thing I need to talk about, which is fevers in the ancient world. Because you may be thinking, like, come on, it's a, it's a fever. It's not that serious. Just give her a few days, a good script, uh, and she'll be fine. But that's not how fevers worked in the ancient world. Though a fever doesn't sound like a big deal. To, like, for me, fever sounds like nothing. Because for the past month, I think every single person in my family has had a fever. Probably y'all have experienced things like that as well. You know, my son wakes up. And he's like, Dad, my head hurts. I think I have a fever. I'm like, welcome to Wednesday. You know, take a number, get in line. They're just normal, you know, because all we do, we have Tylenol, ibuprofen, doctors with amoxicillin. Fevers are nothing to us. We eat them for breakfast. But fevers were serious in the ancient world. They're a a big deal. If you had a fever, basically, you know that one of two outcomes is coming your way. Number one, you're going to have a, a miserable week or a couple of weeks just sort of lying on your bed, burning up until it goes away, or you're going to die. And that's the prognosis. And fevers were common. You know, we see fevers all the time. Fevers were just as common back then because there are hundreds of ways to get a fever from drinking contaminated water, malaria, all sorts of untreated infections that you can't see under your skin, viruses, sinus infection. There are hundreds of ways in the ancient world to get a fever, but not many ways to cure one. Everyone kind of had their their homeopathic, their home remedies, but not a lot of remedies that you could actually count on. Like the Greeks, if you had a fever, their prescription was drink some good wine and get some rest. Which I'm like, I'd like a fever. That sounds great. (laughs) Or... Some believed, like Romans particularly, they believed that ingesting certain types of animal blood or like I read something about crushed fox teeth, well, that would get rid of your fever. But no one really had a surefire answer. No one had any idea how to make a fever disappear, okay? It was just a waiting game, you know, just to see how things shake out with, with grandma, right? So for a a good law-abiding Jew like Peter and probably his mother-in-law, when a fever got really bad and all the home remedies didn't work, they would actually go to the priest where their priest would give them some sort of protocol to follow. And typically, it involved repentance of sin. Okay, Sickness was often linked and assumed to be associated with sin in a person's life. And so a priest would ask that a a sacrifice uh, would be offered, would be made to atone for any sin. But at the end of the day, anything a priest was doing was ultimately praying that God would mercifully deliver the person from their fever. Because there's a limit to that priest's authority. They can't command a sickness to go away. Essentially, the role of a priest is to say, hey, look, only God has the authority to heal sickness, to make a sickness go away. So make sure you and God are on good terms. And I'll tell you how to do that. Present this atoning sacrifice. Make sure you and God are, are good because he's the one that will have to heal you. I can't, I can't do anything about this. And so we, we don't know where in the process maybe Peter's mother-in-law was. Maybe she had already been to the priest and offered some sacrifices to no avail. Or maybe she couldn't even muster up the energy to go to the priest. We don't, we don't know. But what we do know 
is that Jesus, our true high priest, he goes to her. He doesn't ask that she come present herself to him. He's actually a priest that goes to the one who is sick. He doesn't complain about how no one's serving him in the household. He immediately serves her. He doesn't tell her all the things she must do first to make sure you know, she and God are on good terms so that, my, so that God might be merciful to her instead. Look at verse 15. He touched her hand, the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Matthew's showing us that Jesus is a different priest entirely. He's a priest who comes to us, and not only that, he's a priest with authority. He's not like the other priests or the scribes. They can only say, hey, you're in God's hands. Repent, pray he heals you, and hopefully, but, but I can't do anything for you. I don't have that kind of authority. Jesus, Jesus does have that kind of authority. He has the authority to take away a fever in an instant, to the point that she was able to get up and begin serving him. Matthew writes that she got up and served him to indicate that something outrageous has happened. Because when you have 102 fever, and you're lying there in bed, and you, you take some Tylenol, does that fever leave you, and you instantly get up, and you're like, where are my kids so I can make them food? No. It takes a, a while to kick in, and even longer, a few days before you'll feel 100%. Far worse in the ancient world. It's several days to even weeks before you're able to go from fever to back to serving guests. But Matthew says he touched her hand. Mark, again, gives us more detail and says that Jesus took her by the hand and lifted her up from where she was lying. The fever left, and she got up and began doing what she was unable to do just seconds ago when Jesus got to the house, serving and showing hospitality to her guest. The point Matthew's making here is this is crazy. Who on earth could do something like that? Who can heal a fever like this to this extreme instant? One moment, lying there sick, he comes in, lifts her up, no longer sick, and she immediately gets to work. So this is the first point Matthew shows us today, that Jesus is the only one who can heal us. Jesus is the only one who can heal us. He's the only one with that kind of authority. No one else has that kind of authority. No person, no substance, no one, no thing, but Jesus has the authority necessary to tell sickness, disease, or a fever to go away. Anyone or anything we run to for healing other than Jesus at best can say, I can't do anything about this. God alone has authority over our lives because that's, that's true. I mean, how many of you have ever known someone who is in perfect health, amazing, perfect health, and one day they just didn't wake up? And doctors... They just say, it doesn't make sense. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't understand what's happening. They just throw their hands up. That's all they can do. Or maybe on the flip side, when someone gets a terminal a cancer diagnosis, the doctors say, hey, if you're lucky, you'll have one month to live. And then all of a sudden, the cancer just disappears. All you can do in that moment is, I don't know. We don't know. Just throw your hands up. None of us have authority over our sickness, our diseases, our health. At the end of the day, your life, every breath, and your healing is dependent upon Jesus, who holds the universe up by the word of his power, according to Hebrews 1.3. Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? 
I'm not saying that to take medicine <laughs> is to run to something other than Jesus. I have all people, I'm not saying that because I have type one diabetes, okay? Type one diabetes or a more suitable name, not my fault diabetes. <laughs> and it's a disease for which I have to constantly, like constantly on an hourly basis, take medicine to continue to live, okay? I have to keep track of my blood sugar, my food intake, count carbs, and have a steady, through a tube, a steady flow, well, that's not my microphone, that's insulin, that's medicine to keep me alive. I have to have this on constantly just to live on a daily basis. But no doctor, and this medicine has no authority to say whether or not it actually works in my body. My body could at any minute treat this medicine like water, and that'd be the end of old beardy music preacher. <laughs> I actually knew a type 1 diabetic where all of a sudden one day the insulin just stopped working, and she died. No joke. And her doctor, the doctors just threw their hands up. We don't know. There, there was nothing they could do. Nothing doctors could do because there's a limit to their authority. The medicine I take works in my body because Jesus makes it work. Because only Jesus has the authority over my life, my disease, and my healing. Jesus is the only one who can heal us because he's the only one with the authority over every cell in your body, every bacteria, every virus. Everything submits to the authority of Jesus so that when he commands it, it's gone. He has the authority to heal your fever, heal your sickness, heal what's broken, restore what's been damaged. Now, I'm not just talking about physical healing. I mean emotional, psychological healing, spiritual healing. He can heal your depression. He's the one who can heal your anxiety, heal your addiction, heal your anger. And so, here's a question for us this morning. Where do you go for healing? Where do you go to find relief from what ails you? Is Jesus your healer, or are you trusting in someone or something else? Because we come up with a ton of remedies, not fox teeth, right? But for some, it's alcohol or some other substance, right? Prescription painkillers. It feels like a remedy, but it doesn't actually heal the pain. It just sweeps it under the rug. And really, it's just producing new problems down the line, new sickness masked by the temporary relief that you feel. For others, man, social media is crazy. It drives me crazy because everyone has a remedy. But they're always selling. If you have enough followers and you have like a, a blue check mark, whatever you say is, oh, this, this solved it, people will go, eh, that sounds credible. You know, it's probably always, it's like, a, it's like a supplement that everyone's selling. You know, just crush this leaf powder into your pomegranate juice in the morning. You'll never have headaches. You're like, what? <laughs> and we buy it. We, we, we eat it up. Now, I'll try that. I'll try anything. I, I need a remedy. Everyone's got a remedy for what ails you. But here's the catch. Nobody has the authority to heal what ails you. No one. Only Jesus. And so where does he play a role in your pursuit of curing what ails you? Really, the most efficient way to figure out whether or not you go to Jesus to heal you versus some other source is to ask, you know, where does Jesus fit in to your care plan, to your pursuit of healing? Is it, do, you, do you ever pray that Jesus would, would heal you for that brokenness in your life, whether 
physical or emotional or spiritual, for that part of your life that isn't doing too hot, it's just over there lying sick, do you go to Jesus and ask him to heal you? Do you follow him? Do you entrust your life to him? Or are you busy chasing what other remedies you can find? Jesus is the only one who can heal us. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. Why wouldn't he heal you? Don't fear turning into a crazy charismatic. No, do as Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount just a couple chapters ago, ask. Ask him for what you need. Ask him to heal you. Knowing our God is like a good and loving father who loves to give good gifts to his children and praise him for the authority he has. Praise him that he has the authority to actually provide a remedy because only Jesus has the authority to heal us. And we see that on full display as he heals Peter's mother-in-law. But now look at verse 16. Sort of the cumulative effect of all these stories about this man with authority makes its way around the town. And so people start knocking on the door of Peter's house. Verse 16 says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And so once the Sabbath was over, After the sun went down, marking the end of that day, so people aren't going to be chastised by the religious leaders for carrying somebody, for working on the Sabbath. After the sun goes down, people started bringing people to Jesus, bringing folks to Jesus at Peter's house. And don't think like 10 or 12 people. Look at what Mark says uh, in Mark 1, 32 through 34a. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, which sounds like a nightmare to me, but that's okay. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So the whole city's gathered at the door. It's a lot of people because there's a man with authority, someone who commands diseases to go away, someone who heals. But not only that, Jesus has the authority to free as well. They brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. So this is the second point Matthew shows us today. First, we saw that Jesus is the only one. He's the only one that can heal us. And now Matthew shows us that Jesus is the only one who can free us. Namely, Jesus is the only one who can free us from our adversary, the devil, from our slavery to sin and to death. So let's talk about demonic oppression for a second, people being oppressed by demons. There's a trend these days to reduce stories of demonic oppression in the Bible to psychological disorders, like schizophrenia okay, or schizoaffective disorder. When people are uncomfortable with the idea of a spiritual realm, and specifically with an evil or malevolent spiritual realm, they just kind of remove the spiritual from these stories. So it can just be you know, explained by a chemical imbalance. Oh, there's probably just misfires in the brain. Something physical that we can wrap our minds around so it doesn't feel so uh, out of our hands, like we have no authority over it. I even had a professor at seminary, this this is crazy, he said, uh, I've never seen a demon that a pill couldn't cast out, one of my seminary professors. What he's saying is when the Bible says that people were oppressed by demons, well, those dumb people in Bible times, they're not as smart as we are. They didn't know what we know about the brain. And so they thought the only explanation for certain types of you know, self-harming behavior or these fits of rage was demons. But, but we know, we know what's really 
going on. It's a psychological disorder we can now just prescribe a pill for, right? And so as Jesus was casting out demons, really, he's just healing people's schizophrenia. If you try to make that argument, you obviously run into a lot of problems. Okay, first, you have to deny the inerrancy of God's word, which is kind of an issue, yeah? You have to say that every mention of demonic oppression, which Jesus talks about, his disciples talk about, every time they're talking about that, they're actually just filling the air with ignorant nonsense. So you just need to filter that part of the Bible out for yourself as you read it, knowing it's not you know, relevant or true, okay? That's a problem. Anytime you start reading the Bible that way, you're going to run into some, some problems. Also, you have to say that Jesus, is, isn't he sort of playing up an act? Isn't he sort of like playing this weird game of pretend as he casts out demons? He's talking with the demons, commanding them, rebuking them. So you'd have to say in those moments, Jesus is actually just like playing along with the delusions of someone with a serious psychological disorder. He's just joining along with them, playing with them in their disorder. And when he gives his, his, his disciples, he says, now you have the authority to cast out demons. What's that? He's just giving them, it's like, here's how you play this dishonest game of pretend. Again, it's not a tenable view. Instead, when you read about demonic oppression in the Bible, know that demonic oppression is real. It was real then, remains real today, though we don't see obvious signs of it in the West compared to other parts of the world. But demonic oppression is real and is the result of what I'll call the gradual road of progressive desecration. Progressive desecration. Okay, I think I have a slide for this with these two terms. There's this theological term for a Christian's gradual growth in holiness, which is called progressive sanctification, a term I think we're all, um, many of us are familiar with. Because when you became a Christian, you put certain sinful ways to death in you. Okay, you, you were sanctified, you were made holy, you were set apart, you were different. But also, over time, you found out that you have progressively become kinder, more loving, a more charitable person. And the sins that used to tempt you are no longer tempting you like they once did, or they're at least losing their value to you. And that process of growing in holiness is called progressive sanctification. Over time, you become more and more sanctified, more and more holy, set apart, different from the world around you. And that's all thanks to the work of a benevolent, a good and all-powerful spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work in your life, working in you. So just imagine the opposite of progressive sanctification, where there's a malevolent spirit at work in your life, in the life of an individual. And I'm calling that progressive desecration, desecrating. You're growing in opposition to the kingdom of God progressively moving further and further away from your human created purpose, which is to glorify God and enjoy his lordship, but rather progressive desecration is this long, gradual path of becoming more and more entrenched in the kingdom of this world, a kingdom ruled by the devil, advanced by his demons, and ultimately destined to be destroyed. Okay, so that gradual road of progressive desecration that leads to this type of demonic oppression that Jesus is dealing with in our text today. The individuals he's healing and casting uh, evil spirits from are people that were born into sin, just like the rest of us, all of us, born into sin, but apart from the grace of God, have just continued on their way, 
on this road, progressively growing more and more hardened towards the kingdom of God, to the point that they're even being controlled or compelled by these evil spirits, by demons. And their lives are submitted and well indoctrinated under the authority of the one that Paul calls in Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, talking about all of us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's what all of us are born into, unless by God's grace, he picks us up, frees us from that road that we so love to walk down. John says uh, in his gospel that all of us love the darkness and we hate the light. That's all of mankind. That's you, that's me, that's everyone. Until God miraculously frees us, adopts us out of the darkness, frees us from the kingdom of darkness and makes us love to walk down this road in his kingdom, makes us citizens of the light. And so for the Christian, demonic oppression, is, it's no longer a possibility. Okay, we're, not, we're under the authority. We're on a different road. We're under the authority of a different spirit altogether, the Holy Spirit. None can snatch us from God's hand. None can remove us from the kingdom of God. But for those without this freedom, they remain under the power and authority of the prince of the power of the air. And for some, that will lead to demonic oppression. Here's why I say all of this. At every point in a human story, the only thing that can free a person from the authority of sin and darkness and the devil is the authority of God. At every point. There's a a limit to the devil and the demon's authority, and that limit is established by God and his authority. So when Jesus comes across people who are oppressed by demons, he, the God-man, he alone has the authority to free them. To say to the evil spirits, hey, your relationship with this person ends now and commands them to go away. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus has that authority. Only Jesus can free us. That's why in verse 16, people were bringing to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Again, look at what Mark records in this moment. He gives a little bit more detail in verse 34, Mark 1, 34. And he, meaning Jesus, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He speaks from his authority. Jesus is in charge. They know who he is. Jesus has the authority to tell demons whether to come out or not, to speak, where to go, when to go, total authority. And Jesus is the only one with that kind of authority. Therefore, Jesus is the only one who can free us from our oppressor, from our slavery to sin. And so, again, another question for us this morning, where do you go to find freedom from sin? Yes, you may be a Christian, which means you're not, you're not oppressed by a demon. But the course of this world, we still wander down it, don't we? It still calls, calls to us, doesn't it? And when it does, when you sin, where do you find freedom from your failings? Where do you find freedom from temptation? 
Everyone has their remedies. Some just give in to the temptation. It's a quick way to just not have to stress about it, not feel bad about it. It's just a lot, it's a lot less work to stop resisting, at least in the moment. But again, those, those habits of just giving into that sin, they're only creating new problems down the road. It's no remedy at all. For some of us, when we sin, we just, our way of dealing with it is to simply conceal it, to, to, to deny it, or, or blame everyone. Hey, look at them. Look at what they're doing. Blame others for it. We end up buying into the lie that we'll find freedom from sin if we make it our mission, if we set all of our mind's attention and effort on laboring to keep our sin a secret. <laughs> that's not freedom. That's slavery. And you know it. For those caught in that cycle, you know it. You don't feel free. You feel enslaved. You cannot free yourself from your own sin. You need a savior with authority. Do you readily confess your sins to others, trusting Jesus' forgiveness to free you from your burden? Do you bring it into the light with trusted friends, trusting that your worth is found in his grace, not your own righteousness? Or do you try to hide it in the shadows and hope that no one finds out? There's freedom that only Jesus can grant, that he alone has the authority to grant. Going to some other source for freedom which is typically something you have all the authority to do, but it's not freedom. It's slavery to sin. Jesus is the only one who could heal Peter's mother-in-law and those who are sick in the city. Only Jesus, and he can heal you too. And Jesus is the only one who could free those brought to him who were oppressed under the authority of evil spirits. Only Jesus He's the only one with the authority to free humanity from sin, and he can free you too. But don't trust in your own authority. Your authority doesn't go high enough. Go instead to the only one with the authority to free you from sin. Now, verse 17. In verse 17, Matthew gives us this huge reveal. Okay, Matthew's like a magician, but he's not a weirdo. And he gives this huge reveal, the grand finale. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, not Isaiah, though that would make more sense. Uh, Jeremiah, Obadiah, Hezekiah, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Isaiah. <laughs> this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew says, Jesus isn't just someone with the authority to heal, and he's not just someone with the authority to free. The third and final point Matthew shows us today is Jesus is the only one who can make it last. He's the only one who can make it last. In other words, Jesus is someone with the authority to make healing from sickness and freedom from sin something that lasts forever. And you're like, where does he say that? I don't see that in the, in the text. Well, yeah, Matthew doesn't explicitly say that Jesus will make healing and freedom last forever, but Isaiah sure does. And Matthew's point is the prophet Isaiah, and as well as other Old Testament prophets, Isaiah wasn't the only one, but the prophet Isaiah described a coming savior, a healer, a powerful ruler whose kingdom would never end. That's who 
Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 53, the passage we read this morning, and that Matthew is referencing here, this ruler who would take away our illnesses and our diseases. But what's interesting about this ruler is he would take away suffering and disease from God's people and free them and defeat all of their enemies, yes, but not just temporarily, not just until the next king came along. Instead, God's people would someday be healed and freed from their oppressors forever. From this time forth and forevermore, Isaiah says, this coming kingdom of, of joy and peace and rest, it would never come to an end. So Matthew's point in verse 17 is Jesus, this guy who has the authority like no one else, an authority that only God has to heal people and to free people from oppression, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises spoken through the prophet Isaiah, which means that these healings and casting out of demons, they're not just party tricks, rather glimpses into what Jesus' eternal kingdom will be like. Jesus is showing that he has the authority to heal and to free so that we know when he takes charge of the entire world, that's what his eternal kingdom, his eternal government will look like, healing and freedom. So even though, you know, right now our world is submitted to the rule of the devil, right? It's, even though that's the current state of our world, it won't always be this way. One day Jesus will return. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 24, 21, on that day, the Lord will punish the host, singular, the devil, the host of heaven, in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth, and they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They'll be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Meaning, Jesus will dethrone the devil and all those who continue to oppose his good and perfect rule, and he'll establish his eternal kingdom a kingdom that will never end, like Isaiah describes in Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. This will sound familiar in this season. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's a way of signing off saying this will happen. One day Jesus will establish this kingdom in the world as we know it where death and sin and brokenness and chaos and disease, this world will be made brand new like it was before mankind sinned in the garden and was cursed with sin and death. Before the curse of sin and death, all will be made new. Again, I'm using references from Isaiah so you know where Matthew's head is at as he references Isaiah. Isaiah 65, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. This is what healing and freedom, freedom that lasts looks like. And here's Matthew's point. Jesus is the only one who can heal us. Jesus is the only one who can free us. And Jesus is the only one who can make it last. And that day is coming. 
So why would you waste your time in the meantime going to sources of temporary healing and freedom when Jesus offers us something eternal? You and I need healing. You and I need freedom. But we need it to last. We need something eternal, not something that's here one day and gone the next. It's, it's easy for us to get pulled away by temporary remedies. But Jesus is the only remedy that lasts. My hope for us this morning is that we would see areas of our life where we are broken, in need of healing, in need of freedom, and that we would see how Jesus is the remedy that we need. And then that we would go to him and ask him to heal us, to free us, that we would go to him rather than temporary saviors. That's my hope for us this morning. So I want, I want to spend some time as we, as we go to the Lord's table, considering the means by which Jesus offers to heal us and offers to free us. Because it's not, it's not like a wave of a magic wand, right? You're healed, you're freed. That's not the means Jesus depends on. It's not your efforts either. He doesn't, he's not dependent on you to be really sincere and asking for healing. No, the means by which Jesus heals and frees us is his broken body and shed blood. What we celebrate is we take communion. And so let's go to him in prayer and consider his sacrificial mercy as we prepare our hearts to take communion together. Let's pray. We thank you. Thank you, God, that you are a gracious God. Thank you for the gift of your son. God, we thank you that Jesus is a, is a king like no other, an eternal king who can, who can actually effectively heal us and free us, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And that, again, he knows us. Thank you that his life was laid down for us so that we might be called righteous, so that we might be called sons of God, apart from none of our works, but simply by your abundant grace. We praise you for your grace this morning. Now, as we, as we take this meal, we remember the death, the resurrection of Christ. I pray that you would encourage our hearts, edify us. We need you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.